Now, we've been in Mark 12 for a few weeks here, so I'm not just landing in this if you're joining us for the first time this Sunday. But as it turns out, this passage is fitting for Christmas Sunday given the biblical linkage between Jesus and David. We tell the story every Christmas of how Jesus was of the house and lineage of David, why he had to go to Bethlehem to be born and all of that. David was Israel's great king, the one to whom was promised an eternal reign. That is, God said to David during his reign, hundreds of years before Jesus, you're going to have uh, one who's going to come from you whose rule will never end. That's what God promised King David. And now in candor, Jesus being of the house and lineage of David, it may not mean as much to us as it meant to those living in the first century here, the people listening to Jesus in this passage, hearing him gladly, hoping that if he was the Messiah, that was uh, what the Jews called it, in Greek it's Christ, hoping, verse 35, that this one before them, the Christ, also known as the son of David, if that's Jesus, then the next thing to happen is Jesus is going to chase the Romans out. That's what they wanted and even expected. It was a time of political confusion. So when Jesus asks his question of the crowd here, verse 35, repeats it after quoting a psalm, he's getting at this expectation of theirs, but he's also trying to get at an assumption that's informing it. We need to get this in order to follow what's here in our passage. His question is aimed at their expectation that the Messiah, the Christ, promised through David, would immediately rule the nation in the spirit and power of David of old. He would be an earthly king with all the trimmings. For them, it was about the here and now. Get rid of our enemies, the Romans. But Jesus is also aiming at their assumption that that was the enemy. That that was the only enemy, Rome. All this is balled up in this interaction. The enemy he wants them to see is also within them. Something David himself knew back in his day. Something David knew about himself. That there was an enemy within. That's why he spoke of a Lord greater than himself. But the people that Jesus is interacting with here, they're unwilling to accept this. They will be, though they hear him gladly in this moment, mere days from when this took place, they're going to call for his crucifixion. No more glad hearing because, again, if he's the Christ, the son of David, chase the Romans out. And when it becomes apparent he's going to allow the Romans to kill him, well, they sign off on that. What went wrong? The significance in quoting Psalm 110 here. As Jesus does, verse 36. Look, we just have three verses today here in Mark 12. One of them, the middle one in our passage, is from Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, which is something to say. Let me read you that psalm. And you can join me there if you want to. It's not necessary. But this is Psalm 110. It's only seven verses, but it's the psalm that Jesus quotes from and a psalm that the apostles go back to in their writings often. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. 
rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and not changed his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's somebody who goes all the way back to Abraham's time. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? Well, it depends on whether by Christmas we mean the sparkle season or we mean the coming of God in flesh to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should die. That that is how he would establish his right to reign and to rule, which is what kings do. And they judge. And they even shed blood. David did. He was put in place by God to deliver Israel from all her enemies. And yet what David discovered over the course of a 40-year reign in his case, David discovered threats to Israel weren't just external. David himself could be a threat to his own people. We think readily of the Bathsheba narrative, her husband Uriah. It's remarkable for David in Psalm 110. It's a Davidic psalm. David wrote it. Jesus quotes it here in verse 36. It's remarkable for David in Psalm 110, being a king when he writes the psalm, to speak of one greater than himself unless he knew something about himself that we also need to know. Still, kings don't talk this way in self-reference. Looking at Mark 12, verse 36, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The very first verse in Psalm 110. There's no one greater than the king. So what's, what is the king doing saying the Lord says to my Lord, you're Lord, you're, you're the king. What was David on to? The answer is the gospel, the echo of which is all through scripture, and we have it here in abbreviated form, how God works through his gospel to address each and every enemy that exists, including the enemy within. Today, let's take this from two angles. Let's talk about how God works through the gospel to finish what he starts and to end what we started. That's what we'll consider from here, one, two. First, we'll look at how God works through the gospel to finish what he starts, and then we'll move to how God works through the gospel to end what we started. I can think of no better time than Christmas Sunday to unpack this for us from this passage. First, God works through the gospel the gospel preached to David in incipient form, the seed plot of it given to him about an eternal reign, a greater son, Jesus in the fullness of time. God works through his gospel to finish what he starts. Redemption is what he started. Redemption is his thing. Salvation. He's the initiator. We're the recipients. Look at the psalm quote. Verse 36. 
David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Sitting at the right hand of God, the Lord, sitting at the right hand, previews the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That which makes yours and my redemption possible and qualifies him to rule and reign. But he would not take a throne in Jerusalem back in the first century. He would take one at the right hand of God the Father where he is now and from where we await his return. Here in Mark 12 where we are, Jerusalem is about to kill him with the help of Rome. Both Jew and Gentile, all of us responsible for the death of Jesus. You know, a couple of months ago, we were in the uh, Joseph story, Joseph from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And I told you that the bigger story of the Bible is what God is doing about evil. That's the big story of the Bible, what God is doing about evil. This quote from Psalm 110 and verse 36 here perfectly summarizes it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. When enemies are no more, evil is no more. When God ultimately finishes what he started, completing our redemption, the world is put right, finally. The world is for now full of evil until Jesus makes all things new. Until he finishes what he started. What did he start? Redemption. Salvation. A way for us to know life, not death. When is this finished? When the church is fully and finally glorified. Even if I said the story is a Bible about Jesus, which we often say, Jesus is God's ultimate answer to what animates every enemy of his which is the reality of evil. You know, the reason that Christmas is a time to rekindle hope has nothing to do with sentimentality. It has everything to do with the gospel that we believe, that we preach, that we live. If Christmas rekindles your hope, it is because you know this, that what Christmas is about so powerfully speaks to the yearning we have for God to do something ultimately and definitively about the evil that hurts us and hunts us and frustrates us and shames us daily. And what he does is he sends his son through Bethlehem to take on evil as he did through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And so Christmas well kept holds vigil around this reality that evil's days are numbered. Have you made that association? This is what Christmas, the invasion of God, is about. It signals from the, from the moment it happens that evil's days are numbered, evil's reach is limited. Every enemy is bound to go under the feet of Jesus, which is a picture of conquest. Because Jesus came here 2,000 years ago to finish what the redemption of the world requires. What did he say from his cross? It is finished. Then took his seat, not on a throne in Jerusalem, but beside God the Father at his right hand. Completed work. And takes his seat in us also. 
in the hearts of believers through God the Spirit ruling us, reigning over us. O holy child of Bethlehem, as the Christmas hymn puts it, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Through the gospel announced to David centuries before Jesus that David's son would sit at God's right hand and put all enemies under his feet, sitting at the right hand previews the finished work of Jesus that redemption accomplishes for us. God finishes what he starts. And now the second angle, how God works through the gospel to end what we started. He works through the gospel to finish what he starts and now to end what we started. Again, verse 36, this is our focus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until... I put your enemies under your feet. And this previews, if the first part, sit at my right hand, previews what Jesus is about to do in real time there in the Gospel of Mark, just days removed from this, saying this, then the second part, until I put your enemies under your feet, this previews when the work of redemption is completely done. And his rightful rule is established over all. His ending, what we started, which is a rebellion. Our part in the story of the Bible is we got lost. Our part in the story of the Bible is we like evil. Maybe not all of it, but enough of it, we domesticate. There is evil in you, evil from you that you are quite okay with, me also. We participate in the rebellion initiated by our first parents in Eden, and we don't like God or anybody telling us we shouldn't. We willingly participate in the rebellion of old, which is why, left to ourselves, we're God's enemies. Throughout Scripture, you get references to who we are in our nature, our fallenness, that yes, we, we bear the image and likeness of, of God, the, the dignity that's inherent to that, the, the capacity for glory that's inherent to that, but we are fallen. And that puts us at enmity with God. That's the word for enemy. I don't mean this to sound overly contrastive, but each one who lives is either a former enemy turned friend of God through the work of Jesus, or we stand on our own merits before God, trusting our own goodness is sufficient to make God favorable toward us in the end. Now, of course, there have always been those who could care less about God. They've never had a good thought toward God. They don't think he's there. There is enemies with zeal and passion. But most people, most people tend to think of themselves as acceptable to God, approvable to God, so long as we live a a relatively good life. We don't consider ourselves enemies of His in our own nature. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You realize David himself never had that experience in full. His life was full of enemies. 
You go back and read the David story. You've got Saul and Philistines and Absalom, David's own son, starts a coup against him. And there's co-conspirators. And even David himself. David was his own worst enemy. Let me tell you about one such time to illustrate. The Bathsheba affair would do. But there's another time. It comes at the end of his 40-year reign when a census was taken. A census that David called for. You don't need to turn there. It's in, it's in 2 Samuel 24, what I'm going to tell you about here. David shouldn't have called for, for that census. We won't get into why not. Really, it's not that there was anything wrong with a census, but in calling for it, David was being his own worst enemy, which we all are in our sin, whether our sin takes an unrighteous shape expression or a self-righteous shape expression. For all David's strengths and greatness, the reason the, the, the I like how it says the great throng, you know, heard him gladly, verse 37. The reason the crowd loves what he's saying, he's talking about David. They get pumped up when they hear about David. David was the great king. Nobody pushed Israel around back in David's time. That's what they want again. So they hear him gladly, not so much because he's putting scribes in their place. They've watched him do that. It's because he's talking about David and he's associating himself with David. And in their minds, that means the Romans are about to go. This guy, Jesus from Nazareth, who has all this power and all this authority, he's going he's gonna to chase the Romans out. It's going to be David again. This is him. And man, the crushing disappointment when it didn't play out like they wanted it to. Just days from now, they'll be calling for his crucifixion. And so what's going on here is for all David's strengths and greatness, when you go back and look at David's life, David couldn't sustain his obedience before God flawlessly. David's reign wasn't always nurturing to his people. David's fear of God was porous at points, which meant David, though promised the Savior of all, would be from his house and lineage. David also needed that Savior as much as anyone else. And the thing about David is he knew it. You see it, not just in his Psalms, but you also see it in the narratives. But if we went back and read the story I'm telling you about from 2 Samuel 24, about the census and the judgment that fell on the people because of it. Our inclination, if we went back and read that passage, you know, moderns, we're really, we're really good at, 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 at reading our cultural sensibilities back onto the text. And so we consider it outlandish of God to punish the people for something David did. And in fact, if we went back and read the story, David himself was upset by God punishing the people, but for a different reason from us, not because he had denied God has a right to judge. Now he says to God back there, when this judgment falls and 70,000 people die at the hands of an avenging angel, the end of 2 Samuel, it's a, it's a very difficult chapter in David's story. When David sees this going on, he says, Lord... Only one man needs to pay for this, me. And when he says that, he's willing to step into the place of God's judgment to save the people. 
His impulse is entirely good. And yet David, along with the people, God had been seeking an opportunity to judge them. The text there says David was just as much in the wrong as they were. How could one also in the wrong stand in their place? He couldn't. 70,000 people die. There's a very specific place there at the end of 2 Samuel where the judgment stops. Very specific location. And in that specific location, God sends to David a prophet and he says, what I want you to do, David, is I want you to raise an altar right here on this spot where the judgment stopped. And so David, the Jewish king, buys from this Gentile this plot of property where God stayed his hand. And the plague on the 70,000 people was, 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 was called off. Right on this specific plot of property. And later on, under David's son Solomon, what goes on that piece of property David buys is the temple. Look again at verse 35. Where are we? And as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He brings up David. They're all sitting here on the plot of property David provided for the temple to be built on by his son Solomon. But David, the one who provided the property, could not put every enemy under his feet himself because David was at times his own worst enemy. There has to be another who doesn't just deal with enemies external, but also the enemy within, which every one of us in this room lives with. I'm not talking about your spouse or your kids. Merry Christmas. You are your own worst enemy, even if you are the epitome of self-controlled self-restraint. If you are peerless as to relative goodness, Incredibly self-sacrificial and generous, great, as the Californians like to say condescendingly to people, good for you. But you're not Jesus, and he's the standard. He's the only one, the only one. Let me underscore this. He's the only one that God has ever been totally and completely pleased with. So if I'm going to have any chance with God, I've got to get Jesus for me somehow. What's demonstrated to us, just in, in one verse, taken from an Old Testament context, put into the New Testament context, What's illustrated to us in Psalm 110, in Mark 12, and 2 Samuel 24 that I was telling you about, the odd story of the, of the census and the fallout from it, what we're shown throughout the Bible is our plight before a God who only has to judge us, we being his enemies. But at great cost to himself, God put that judgment on Jesus, who was sinless, but ends up getting treated as if he's guilty of everything abominable, everything negligent, everything base and tawdry and evil. And he willingly takes our judgment in our place in order to turn us from enemies into his friends. 
even more than friends, into sons and daughters of God. It's the mother load of grace. And he's the only one who can pay for everybody's sins. His forefather, David, had the impulse. Look it up later, 2 Samuel 24. Only one person needs to die for this, me. But it was because of his sin that the thing was happening. And so while the impulse was right, he couldn't do it being a sinner himself. Jesus is David's greater son. And he was his Lord in that he was the only one who could do anything about the enemy within David. The enemy within the scribes and all the people sitting here listening to Jesus, the enemy within you and me listening to Jesus today 2,000 years on in looking at this text. That's what Jesus is driving at here. In quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And, and how, can, how can David, you know, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? What is he getting at? David's greater son is David's Lord in that he's the only one who can do anything about the enemy within. Enemies are not just external. Our sin, which is both unrighteous and self-righteous in expression, our sin makes us, we ourselves, the Lord's enemies. Who is going to do something about that? Christmas says over and over and over again, God himself does something about that does something about that, did something about that, continues doing something about that in pointing people back to the coming of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be treated as an enemy of God, but be given everlasting life. Would you pray with me? This Christmas Sunday, we hear again the gospel message from this passage, Lord, about David's descendant, born in Bethlehem, the greater son who was his Lord because he was the only one who could take care of the enemy within. And we thank you, Lord, that you are good to us. We thank you that it pleases you to be gracious and merciful. Because if it did not, we would have no hope. We thank you for Christmas, how it declares over and over and over again to us of a redemption provided for us when all we did was get lost and all we did was look for our salvation in all kinds of self-projects, and we still do. Lord, would you free us from that? Would you apply your mercy to us in such a way that we behold you as gracious and self-giving and that you want us to belong to you and to know what it is to be nurtured by Jesus himself through this life we live in this world that is so full of frustrating things. Lord, thank you for what you've accomplished for us. Thank you that Christmas rings out with joy because Christmas is a season of provision 
you have given us hope. And it's not something that is a, is a guess with you. It's something that's a, a confidence, it's a certainty. Not based on our performance, but based on yours, Lord Jesus. That you came as the son of David and you would give yourself for the likes of us. Lord, I have no doubt that if I was in the crowd, I would have called for your execution as anybody else. I would have been caught up in the fervor, in the rancor. I'm enough of a Pharisee that I would have made a really good one. And so I thank you for your mercies to me. Thank you for how you have graced us through another year. No matter what we've experienced this year in terms of loss or disappointment, Lord, we declare as one voice that you are good and you are good to us in Jesus. And we thank you for the certainty of that, how it girds us and how it holds us and how it shapes us. Thank you for Christmas time. Thank you for meeting with us in this place through your word. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.